Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Uh, our World Cup campaign continues, and today, Dominic, is, I think, the country I probably know least about. Uruguay. Uruguay, yes. And even Costa Rica, I knew about the kind of, you know, the dinosaur element, the Jurassic World element. But Uruguay, I don't really know anything about it at all. So I'm looking forward to being educated. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll have a little potted history of Uruguay later in this podcast. Uruguay, of course, are the country that won the very first World Cup in 1930, as you'll remember if you listen to our podcast about the history of the World Cup. So I'm not even sure where it is. I, I know it's Latin America somewhere, South America somewhere. North, <laughs> South America, is it? <laughs> I, I have a kind of weird blank spot over Uruguay. So Uruguay is nestled between Argentina and Brazil. It is on the east bank of the River Uruguay, uh, and it is across the bay of the River Plate from Buenos Aires. Okay, I, you see. I you see. I thought it was. I thought it was opposite the Caribbean. I'm obviously getting no, with no, Venezuela. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, okay. Uruguay, I'm, I'm parading my ignorance. I will shut up are. from now on. Uruguay is one of the most European. And indeed, a lot of people would say the most European of all South American countries. But Tom, we were meant to start with this sort of children's encyclopedia, um, <laughs> just sort of standard discussion, because I wanted to start like a James Bond film with I'm a sorry. three credits, I three credits for sequence. You. Yeah, we haven't ruined it. So l- listeners, clear your minds. The camera focuses in and we find ourselves in the suburb of Positos, in the city of Montevideo, this great port on the coast of the South Atlantic. And uh, the British ambassador, Jeffrey Jackson, is saying goodbye to his wife. The date is the 8th of January, 1971. So you can picture the scene. He's got slightly flared trousers, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, his, his wife is in the bath. Um, so she just calls out to him, you know, have a nice day, darling, or whatever. He says, um, I'm off now. I've got a meeting at the embassy in Montevideo, in the central town. The office will ring when I'm coming home for lunch. So he goes downstairs out of his house. His driver is, is there with his Daimler. The ambassador gets into his Daimler, and he's looking at his watch, Tom, because he's worried that he's got an appointment with a visiting British businessman at 10.15, so they have to hurry. So they're making their way through the streets of Montevideo, this very European-looking city in South America, they turn into a particularly narrow street. And at that point, as luck would have it, a red van pulls out and bumps into them. And, you know, Jeffrey Jackson in the back is obviously furious. This is going to slow him down for his meeting. His driver gets out for a moment to swap details with the driver of the red van. And Tom, that was his mistake. Because at that moment, a group of men leap out from the shadows They jump into the car, pull open the doors. They pull out their pistols, aim them at Jeffrey Jackson. The next thing he knows, they are driving off, this driver left behind. They're they're herring off through the streets of Montevideo. And eventually they stop. He doesn't know where they are. They drag him out and throw him into another van, a blue van this time. One of them rips off the sleeve of Jeffrey Jackson's suit, rolls up his... um, his shirt jabs in a syringe as they inject him with drugs. His, his head is swimming 
but he doesn't pass out. They put they say tie a handkerchief over his eyes, so he's very groggy. He's half aware of where he is. He can, he's conscious that they're moving again. Off they go, sort of um, rocking over potholes and things. And eventually, he's conscious of them stopping and stuff going on around the van. And then the door is opened. He's still blindfolded. They drag him out, and then they pull off the handkerchief, and he finds himself in an underground basement. Here's Tom, a prisoner of the Tupamaros. What was that music? <laughs> that was Pan Pipes. That was South American Pan Pipes. I thought it was so good why? to have a music. <laughs> it was good to have <laughs> I mean, was, was that what, so that wasn't what they actually played. That's this is <laughs> no, they didn't play any music at all. They were gorillas. They were urban gorillas. Oh, so they didn't yeah. even play. Oh no, that's how the film starts. So, oh, I see. I told you it was a James Bond style. Oh, I see. <laughs> and then it cuts from that. Somebody well, says to him, James Bond. I think somebody would say to him, you're a prisoner. Of the Tuba Maros. And then cue music. No, but it would be much more Ennio Morricone. <laughs> is that kind what Ennio Morricone does? It's exactly what he is. It wouldn't be well, it wouldn't pan pipes for a guy who's just been kidnapped. <laughs> well, anyway, listen. Let's uh, let's do the history behind this. I like your idea of infusing up the uh, the podcast with music. I think we should do that more often. Yes. Yeah. It's a brilliant idea. I'm <laughs> sure no one has thought of that before. Of course they haven't. So, okay, Uruguay, you want a bit of a bit of a backstory on all this. What on earth is going on? So the subject of today's podcast is this urban guerrilla group called the Tupamaros and their um, impact on Uruguayan history. But first of all, as you said before we started, we really do need a sense of Uruguayan history and, and what's going on. So by South American standards, Uruguay is very, very small. It's It's nestled on the east bank of the river Uruguay, which basically it flows out from the interior of Brazil all the way down to the Atlantic. And the port of Montevideo was founded by the Spanish as part of their competition with Portugal. So it's across, and it's, a, it's got a kind of sister port, a, a rival, which is Buenos Aires. So the rivalry between Buenos Aires and Montevideo is incredibly intense. So, I mean, this is a World Cup podcast, mm-hmm. and that first um, World Cup final, 1930, Uruguay and Argentina. I mean, it's to some sense, that's a final really between Montevideo and, uh, and River Plate. Now, why was it? Why does it, this exist at all? Why isn't it just part of Argentina? Well, the one reason is that um, when the Spanish Empire collapsed at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the port of Montevideo was seized by Portuguese Brazil, and actually there was a war between the Empire of Brazil and the United Provinces of Rio de la Plata, which became Argentina, for control of Montevideo. It's called the Cisplatine War, and um, it was actually the British. As always, meddling in South American <laughs> affairs, they, they basically wanted um, a rival to, to Buenos Aires that they kind of had a, a controlling interest in. The British negotiator, who had the splendid name Lord John Ponsonby, uh, he wrote privately, he said, the interest and security of British commerce will be greatly promoted in a state in which the governors cultivate a friendship with England. The Eastern Strip, so this is the eastern sort of bank of the river, by which he means Uruguay, contains the key to La Plata and to South America, and we must perpetuate a geographical division of states that benefits England. 
So this is another reason why why Britain is so popular with Argentina, presumably. <laughs> exactly, yes. So basically what they do is they create this, or, what's called the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Oriental? as on the eastern side. Yes, the eastern yeah. side. As, it's a buffer state between Brazil, and Portuguese Brazil on the one hand, and the United Provinces, which become Argentina, on the other. And Uruguay's history after that, so effectively what you've got is one port, Montevideo, and then it's it's hinterland. So it's a very small country. Its population throughout the 19th century was less than a million. Uh, it fought wars against its neighbors from time to time. It was dominated by a single party, the Colorado Party. And the big thing that transformed it was immigration. So immigration from Spain and from Italy. There's virtually no indigenous population there now whatsoever. Um, so it's all Spanish and Italian immigrants. So in other words, it's like a little Argentina that is very conscious that it's not Argentina. The thing with Uruguay is that, like, rather like Argentina, it seemed at the beginning of the 20th century to be set fair for an absolutely splendid future. So it was, it's this port and then farming land around it, basically. It's rich. It exports loads of um, wool and loads of meat. There's high price, high world prices for these things. So by the interwar years, it has paid for tons of schools and hospitals. It's got a very advanced welfare state. It has done things like it has abolished the death penalty. It has instituted women's suffrage. So when it wins the World Cup in 1930, as always in sporting history, this is actually, the sporting success is a reflection of economic success. So people often think it's a bit weird that a country as small as Uruguay wins that first World Cup. It's not weird at all. It wins it because it's a, a very, very successful country. Um, the highest per capita income in Latin America, very complicated so social welfare system. People call it the Switzerland of the Americas. So it's, it's a sort of haven of stability. It's a very small army, small police force. There's very little crime. Everything is great. But then after World War II, things start to go wrong as they do across Latin America more generally. So I said that it exported wool and meat. Both of the prices for those things go into very steep decline. Uh, Uruguay is struggling to make ends meet to support its, its welfare system. Inflation goes through the roof. Uh, you get mass unemployment uh, becoming a, a factor. The peso, the currency, has to be devalued. And you start getting people writing about this intense poverty as people feel that they're missing out and that they're not getting the rewards that they expected. So it's a Uruguayan writer called Eduardo Galeano who wrote a book that you can still see, you know, you go into a Waterstones to the Latin American history section, and they will have it. It's called The Open Veins of Latin America. It's seen as a sort of classic of Latin American political historical writing. Um, and Galliano, it's a sort of left-wing account of how Latin America has been betrayed by world capitalism. And he, he, said, he wrote in 1971, this gives you a, a sense of the sort of very fevered tone of, of the conversation. Uh, the human murder by poverty in Latin America is a secret. Every year, without making a sound, three Hiroshima bombs explode over communities that have become accustomed to suffering with clenched teeth. And what Galliano was writing reflected what a lot of young Uruguayans thought. They thought that basically their dream had been taken away from them and that they were condemned to life in, with kind of inflation and unemployment and all of these kinds of things. Well, thank God that doesn't happen here. Exactly. And there's no, uh, yes, exactly. Well, will we get a Tupamaros of our own? I don't know. So one of these people who thinks this is a guy called Raul Sendik. So his father was a, a peasant outside Montevideo. 
He's that classic example, which you see time and time again in kind of extremist groups or terrorist groups of somebody who was the bright boy from a, a poor family who's gone away to university and sort of, you know, he's educated himself, he's filled his head with stuff, but there's a lot of anger and resentment there when that society doesn't really seem to have a niche for him. So like Prince Harry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just like Prince Harry. Um, Prince Harry did not go to university, though, Tom. That's, that's, that's true. That's, yes, that's true. I think Raoul Sendik was a more, how should I put this? I think he was more academically accomplished man <laughs> right, than, okay. uh, than Prince Harry. So Raoul Sendik, he went to university in Montevideo. He did a law degree. Um, he joins the Socialist Party. He becomes very active in kind of young socialist politics. He's horrified by what he sees as the mistreatment of agricultural uh, laborers um, outside the city. He starts a campaign to to get better working conditions and things for cane workers, and they might that he organises a protest in Montevideo, which is very violently repressed, and that sort of pushes him um, further and further to the left. And so, in 1963, so we just start. We're not that long after the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, a lot of very bright people in these places are influenced by what's happened in Cuba. He sets up a group called the Movimento de Liberación Nacional, but it's better known uh, by its nickname, the Tupamaros. So it's named specifically after the last great kind of Peruvian Inca rebel, who was a guy called Tupac Amaru II, who uh, lived and died in Peru in the 1700s, so 1740 to about 17 to 1781. So he was the he himself, Tupac Amaru II, was a descendant of the last ruling Inca, Tupac Amaru I. So this is all very Tintin. Yeah, absolutely. Tintin and the Picaros. Is that, that, kind, of, that, that yes. kind of thing? Yes. So presumably that's where Hergé is drawing. I, I think there's an, a huge, yeah. exactly. I think there's a huge element of Tintin and the Picaros about this. So Tupac Amaru II had rebelled against the Spanish um, in the 1770s. He had been captured. He was taken to Cuzco. It's a, what happened to him was horrific. He was forced to witness the execution of his wife and his sons. And then he himself was hanged, drawn and quartered and then beheaded. So very grim end for Tupac Amaru II. But before he died, he said in Quechua, how's your Quechua, Tom? I thought it was Quechua. Is it? Well, there it you is. go. It's better than yeah. mine. <laughs> That's clearly better than mine. So, so you'll be able to please judge my pronunciation. He said, Tikrashami hunu makana koipi kasha. And obviously you'll know what that means. Uh, yes, but, but probably for the benefit of those who, who don't, you should say, yeah, what, should it, say. what it actually he said. Means. I'll be back, and there'll be millions of us. He Hasta said la vista. Accent. Yeah, he said, I'll be back, and there will be millions of us. And since then, Tupac Amaru II's words had resounded down the generations for people who basically dreamed of an alternative to what, I suppose, what they saw as um, conservatism, capitalism, Hispanicization. But I thought you said that that there weren't any, that everyone there was Spanish. And that's the that's the glorious irony that um Raul Sendik, I'm assuming from his from his surname, that his surname was probably originally Sendich and he was perhaps Balkan. That there was some yeah. Balkan immigrants in his background. But the people of Uruguay are of Spanish and Italian extraction. But there's this kind of romanticization, isn't there, of the indigenous and you see this in Latin America, you see it every, I mean, you see it in lots of places, but it's not least in Latin America, this romanticization of the sort of indigenous resistance, this, and this, which becomes melded. Despite the fact that he was a king. 
This is yeah. a Marxist group, but they're they're yeah. identifying. So there's lots of weirdness going on then. Yeah, they're Spanish, but they're identifying with indigenous right. people of a totally different country. But this was very yeah, but this was very much the the trend. And they're communists. They're Marxist, but they're identifying with a king. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the downtrodden masses. Yeah, a representative of the downtrodden masses, Tom. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they set up this uh, this urban guerrilla group, cellular structure, the classic thing that you get among mm-hmm. sort of urban guerrillas. They start off from 1963. They basically start off as bank robbers because they need to make money. They have no resources. They have all kinds of heists. They get a sort of slightly Robin Hood reputation. So they they rob a casino in the resort of Punta del Este, and there they they steal all the money and then they send back tips for the people working at the casino. So they do all these kinds of things. The government tries to crack down and fails. Gets the United States to help. So the United States says, we will send people to train your police in counterinsurgency and so on. This will become important. This will become important later on. And so this is, this is, um, Americans training Latin American countries, police forces in the 70s. With electrodes and stuff. It's generally not. Yeah. Well, we'll come to this because this is a really, really important point. Should we take a break at this point? Uh, if you want, if you want to, if you're, if you, are you um, do you want to go and listen to some more panpipes? Is that what it is? <laughs> well, do you want to play us out with some panpipes? Do you have some to hand? Uh, it, it's it sort of the same. Well, let's let's have it again. Uh, I, I'm sure that people enjoyed okay. it the first time. This is a- so goodbye. We'll we'll be back very soon. We're, we'll we'll leave you for a moment with the Tupamaros theme. <laughs> Take us out. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket, and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine, if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. I I think that everyone will agree uh, after the end of the first half that this whole idea of integrating music, stop it, Dominic, of integrating music into history podcasts is a ludicrous idea and it will never work. So, um, so Dominic, please, no more panpipes. But we're talking about the Tupamaros, who I'd never heard of before, but I now know 
lots about, but I want to know what happens, Dominic. So could you could you tell me and could you tell the listeners? I will do. I will do. And maybe, you know what, Tom, we could, I mean, maybe we could sneak a bit of music back in later. Okay, well, if it, I'll tell you what, if, if you do a good job, I will let you do that. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. But, but you've got to do a good job. So 1968, the Uruguayan government declared a state of emergency. They were completely failing to deal with these, the Tupamaros. Uh, the Tupamaros upped their game. And are they growing at this point? Yeah. Or is it still, still just a kind of Bader Meinhof small? They're, I think they're larger than Bader, than a Bader Meinhof. Kind of Red Brigade, that kind of level? A bit like Italy? Maybe, yes, exactly. I would say a little bit like that. They have one, they have a couple of tactics that I don't think we should adopt on the rest is history and, and one they do. So the ones they don't, that I don't recommend are the intimidation of the police by selective assassinations of policemen. We're not really in favor of that, I think. No, we're not. The other is kidnapping. Um, we'll come back to kidnapping because, of course, we started with the kidnapping of the British ambassador. So you were absolutely, you're categorically ruling that out. I'm ruling that out. But the one thing I would like to see us doing, Tom, is a bit more armed propaganda. Okay. So what that means <laughs> is that they would, they would basically invade groups of them with weapons would unexpectedly invade places where people were meeting. So yeah. they'd invade restaurants or cinemas or theatres. And they would make, as, as it says in the thing I read, they would make speeches to a literally captive audience. <laughs> yeah, let's, well, that's a way of promoting the Rest is History Club. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> if not enough people join the Rest is History Club, we will be forced to take extreme yeah. measures and, you know, burst into cinemas or whatever um, and do podcast, force people to listen to our <laughs> podcasts yeah. at machine gun point. Kidnapping became their sort of signature tactic. So, for example, they kidnapped the head of the state telephone company in the summer of 1968. And then in 1969, they kidnapped one of the Uruguay's leading bankers. And what do they do to them? They hold, they usually hold them for sort of 10 weeks or so um, in support of a strike or something or demanding a ransom. And then release them? Or do they chop ears off? Or By and large, they're not unnecessarily cruel. Right. I mean, these are people who began as... But are they saying, um, give, give the workers better rights, or are they saying, give us $200,000? I mean, no, what, it's, off, it's a bit of both. It's a little bit of both. So, for example, when they kidnapped the guy who was the banker in September 1969, they held him for 10 weeks, but that was in support of a strike by employees at his bank. Right. So they said better terms for the... And did it work? Um, I, think it, I think it did work. Yeah, I think it did work. Okay. The government is completely unable to deal with this. The government is calling up, starts to call up more and more kind of paramilitaries. So what's happening is actually the Uruguayan government, which has previously been democratic, is moving towards more and more authoritarian measures. So you've got this ratchet. Yeah. The more that the Tupamaros sort of carry out their, their sort of spectacular coups, the more the government becomes the government that they think it is, if you yeah. know what I mean. They think it's fascistic and all this sort of stuff. So, as I said, we began that thrilling scene at the beginning of the podcast in January 1971 yeah. when Jeffrey Jackson was imprisoned. So he was kept in prison, Tom, for 244 days. Goodness, that is a long time. That is a very long time. So it was quite a big story in Britain at the time, utterly forgotten now, but it was quite a big story. They released one photograph of him, his kidnappers, uh, showing him having grown this colossal, he was an, wasn't allowed to shave, so he he looked like Moses. Mm -hmm. He'd grown this huge flowing white beard. The Uruguay government were completely embarrassed by this. They sent people out all across Montevideo searching for him, never found. All through the, during the time he was a prisoner, his captors wore masks. And what did they want? Well, they basically wanted, um, the, the very, this is a very confusing thing. They never issued any ransom demand at all. They basically just issued a letter saying the British, uh, you know, 
piratical leeches have stolen all Uruguay's wealth, representatives of capitalism, imperialism, and so on. But they didn't really issue any very concrete demands. So it's quite hard to hard to deal with them. Yeah. They told Jackson, they said, if you're ever if the security forces ever find where we've got you, uh, we will kill you on the spot. So that was bad news from his perspective, because it means, you know, does he hope for escape or, or not? Um, they did hey, they did interview and in, they did arrange an interview for him with a Cuban journalist in which he talks to this Cuban and he sort of says, well, I jog around my cell to keep fit and all this kind of thing, and I'm, I'm in decent health. Um, but he wasn't actually released until the 9th of September 1971. They had been demanding a re- the release of some of their, their fellow prisoners, so they'd finally issued a proper demand. But that presumably is the responsibility of the Uruguayan government, so it's, not, it's nothing the British have done. No, nothing the British can do about it. They basically wanted the British, they wanted the Uruguayan government to release all these prisoners, 106 prisoners in a jail in Montevideo. Eventually, the prisoners just escaped anyway. Okay. So, or do you think they were sprung by MI6? Well, not by MI6. I mean, it might have been some collusion with the Uruguayan government. So Jeffrey Jackson had been in prison for eight months. He was left out blind. He was blindfolded and he was taken and left outside a church. And then um, he flew back to Britain. Um, Ted Heath gave him a knighthood. Oh, so, so, so it wasn't all bad. No, for services to being a hostage. So, um, so, so that was nice for him. But of course, the one reason perhaps we don't remember it is it was eclipsed by what is by far the Tupamaros' most famous kidnapping. Um, and this was of a man, I mean, I say famous, a lot of people won't have heard of this, although it was later made into a film. This was a man called Dan Mitrioni, and this happened in 1970. So Dan Mitrioni, Tom, you were talking about uh, Americans training Latin American policemen and so on. Yeah. Dan Mitrioni is an American policeman. He'd been the police chief in Richmond, Indiana, and in the 50s and 60s. And then he joined a program called the International Cooperation Administration, which sounds like nothing. Sounds very sinister, actually. Exactly. It, was, <laughs> it, was, it provided U.S. training to civilian policemen. Mm. So his first posting was to Belo Horizonte in Brazil, and then he's transferred to Rio. And he it's later been claimed that when he was in Rio, he helped to train the Brazilian police and how to torture their own people. And then he goes to Uruguay. Now, what Mitrioni was doing in Uruguay remains the source of great controversy, and it's a very good example of how sometimes in history, I think you just have to admit, we don't know and we will never know that the truth is unattainable. But presumably people are prone to favouring their opinion of what was happening reflects their political assumptions, I would guess. I, I totally, totally and utterly. So some former Uruguayan policemen and people who worked with the CIA in Uruguay said, they said Mitrioni was the head of torture. So Mitrioni taught you how to, literally taught you how to electrocute people's genitals. And his credo, his guiding principle was, the precise pain in the precise place in the precise amount for the desired effect, which is quite sinister. Uh, a Cuban guy claimed that he had infiltrated the CIA at CIA as a double agent. He said Mitrioni would abduct homeless people from the streets of uh, Montevideo and he would use them as guinea pigs in his torture classes. He said Mitrioni would keep the victims alive for multiple torture sessions, but eventually they'd, they'd die. And then uh, Mitrioni would um, would dump their bodies in the streets. So that's kind of very sinister. On the other hand, some people who worked with Mitrioni in the CIA say this is absolute nonsense. He didn't do this at all. He was 
advising in kind of you know counterinsurgency and riot control and these kinds of things but torture was completely not part of his remit and he would never have dreamed and of how this. reliable are they well this is the thing tom how can you possibly know you could say well they would say that wouldn't they i think i, I think i would say that they would say that if they were covering up for him but equally tom they would say that if he was it was innocent and they were just his mates. Yeah, but, but they don't, but, but by and large, people don't fix on one person and say he was the chief torturer. I mean, there must have been lots of, lots of Americans uh, kind of playing a role in, in it, a similar role. Right. But the reason we're having a conversation about him is because he was kidnapped. Now, okay. here's, the, here's the twist. Raoul Sendik later was asked, why did you kidnap Mitrioni? This is 1987. And he said, because he trained the police in riot control and because the policeman had killed some student protesters while suppressing riots. But he didn't mention torture or electrodes or anything. They're the head of the Tupamaros. So why didn't he mention it if the torture was the main issue? So in other words, it's a very confused story. And listeners will, will probably have already jumped to their own conclusions based on their own politics, which is you know what we all do. Um, I think the only honest answer we can say is that we, you know, we just don't know whether he did all this. We do know, though, what happened to him. He was kidnapped on the 31st of, of July. But then, within a week, the Uruguayan police captured a lot of the Tupamaros leadership. So that meant that Mitrione's captors, the, the guards, were left without instructions about what to do with him. So he's still in some basement somewhere. They demand the release of political prisoners. And they say, if you don't you know, release them, 150 political prisoners, we will kill Mitrione. And the Uruguayan government says, well, we're not going to release them. And so a few days later, Mitrioni is found dead in a car, having been shot twice in the head. And the reason this is well known, or became briefly well known, is because it was made into a film by Costa Gavras, the guy who made Zed, if you've ever seen the film Zed, or uh, Missing with Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. So he made very political kind of Hollywood thrillers in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Mitrioni in the film is played by Yves Montand, oh, right. a great French actor. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a funny twist, the film was all about the Mitrione kidnapping, but it was filmed in Chile under Salvador Allende. So in that brief window of time before Salvador Allende himself Got was toppled. toppled by the Pinochet queue. Why, why did they cast a Frenchman to play an American? Yves Montand had already played the protagonist in Costa Gavras's film Zed, which is about the Greek colonels and about repression in Greece. So Costa Gavras, who's this, he's a very great filmmaker, and his film State of Siege is incredibly atmospheric. It's very pan pipey, Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sort of feel everything is very misty and gloomy in Montevideo. It's always kind of raining. And, and so pro um, the Tupamaros. Yeah, in a way, although, I mean, it's one of those films from the 70s where there were just... Every, everyone's terrible. Everyone's terrible. And there were just colossal stretches of people having political conversations in basements, yeah, wearing okay. hoods, talking about the means of production or something. Yeah. So, but it's, it's oddly watchable. Anyway, in the aftermath of the Mitrioni kidnapping, the Jeffrey Jackson kidnapping, the Uruguayan president basically announced a massive crackdown. He said, it's a state, we're in a state of war. I mean, hence the title of the Costa Gavras film, State of Siege. There's mass arrests. There's all kinds of tortures. Basically, the government wins, but it crushes the Tupamaros, but at the price of destroying Uruguayan democracy. So to give you a sense of that, the army in Uruguay, before this crisis had accounted for about 1% of Uruguay's national budget. 
by the time it's over, it, it accounts for almost 30%. And presumably a lot of that is being spent on reflective sunglasses and all <laughs> yes. that stuff. And cattle prods, exactly. Cattle prods. <laughs> yeah, a lot of braid. Absolutely it is. So yeah. in other words, it's become a very, very repressive garrison kind of state. Trade unionism, for example, is outlawed. All trade unions are outlawed. 5,000 people are thrown into prison. What a sad story. What a sad story. So one in five Uruguayans was arrested. <laughs> one in five? Yeah, at, at some stage during the, 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 the dictatorship. So basically democracy is suspended between 1973 and 1985 in this sort of Switzerland of South America. And during this period... Uh, Uruguay has the highest number proportionate political prisoners in the world, more than anywhere else. So it's a, like Argentina. It's a kind of terrible warning uh, uh, that a prosperous, advanced welfare state. Yeah. Tom, I can see where you're going with this. I don't no, like it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just leaving it hanging there. But but it, but Argentina is always the example that is cited, yeah. but Uruguay as well. But it's, it's arguably, you, you, you might say, even, even more, more extreme. Yeah. Now, I think that was a bit bleak, so I think we should have a slightly happy ending. I mean, we'll get there by through through some the medium of music. No, no, oh. <laughs> we'll get there through the medium of, of of even greater torture and horror. But we'll get to the happy ending, I promise. So the Tupamaros leadership were almost all arrested. Some of them fled the country, but they, by and large, they were all arrested and thrown into prison, where they were treated abysmally. Raul Sendik, he was in prison. He ended up later on going to. Um, Paris, and he died in Paris in, in 1989. But the more famous example, certainly, I mean, I don't believe we do have any Uruguayan listeners, but if we do, they will know where I'm going with this, was a man called Jose Muica. So Muica, he's Uruguay in one person. His parents are kind of immigrants from the Basque country and from Italy, from Liguria. He had joined the Tupamaros in the mid-60s. Uh, he had led some of the sort of robberies and stuff. He had been shot in 1970 by the police and was and, and only just lived he was taken to hospital the surgeon sort of managed to just about sew him back together um, his insides and afterwards muhika thought that the surgeon had saved him because the surgeon was a tupamara sympathizer actually the surgeon said later he did it just because it was his medical job kind of duty yeah. yeah exactly hippocratic oath but, but exactly but he is then captured in 1972 muhika and the um the hunter, the people who run Uruguay, they keep him at the bottom. I mean, this will give you a sense of the conditions. They keep him at the bottom of a, a horse watering trough. He's basically trapped in this horse trough for two years. Two years? Yeah. In a horse trough? Which is, God. which is pretty awful. Um, he is, he's, he's, because he's been injured by bullets and he's got this problem with his guts. He's in terrible pain for a lot of this time. He's driven kind of half mad. He's not allowed any form of toilet. Like a lot of the prisoners weren't. They were allowed um, family visits I mean, from time to time. His mother brought him a potty. She bought a potty from a shop and took it because he said it's the one thing he wanted that would make his life more bearable. But the guards wouldn't give it to him. They only relented and gave it to him after one day the jailers had a party. And Mujica made such a fuss, screaming and shouting and sobbing and shouting for his potty, that they um, finally brought it to him. And he insisted on taking it with him whenever they moved him to a new cell or a new prison or anything like this. He saw it as a sign of his victory over the over the jails. But he also refused to clean it, which I think is a... Right. So he had sort of been driven half mad. Anyway, he, Muika, was released in 1985, and he wanted to still be involved in politics. 
we sort of moved slightly towards the more pragmatic centre. He was still left wing, but he he wasn't a Tupamaros anymore, or member of the Tupamaros. Um, anyway, the people who had tortured him and kept him in prison and all this sort of stuff, in 2009, the Uruguayan people voted on a law to give them amnesty, to have an amnesty for everybody who had been involved in state repression. And the, and the law passed. It was a, basically a referendum, and the Uruguayan people approved it. So that's, you know, you say for Muica, quite bad. But on the very same day, they picked him to be the president of Uruguay. And oh. he was the president of Uruguay from 2010 to 2015. He was an extraordinary figure by the standards of world leaders. So he's a former, Muica was a former urban guerrilla. And he was married to a fellow urban guerrilla called Lucia. They didn't have any children. They lived in a farm on the outskirts of Montevideo where they cultivated chrysanthemums for sale. So a chrysanthemum farm. Mm-hmm. That was basically their job. When he became president, he refused to move into the presidential palace. Why was he chosen as president? He didn't run for it. He just got... He did run for it. Yeah, he did run oh, for okay. it. He ran, right. as a, he ran as a sort of um, as a left-wing maverick, I suppose. Okay. But, but, as a, but it's a symbol of hu- a kind of, of humility and frugality because they lived on this farm with a dog with three legs called Manuela. You know, he drove a 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. He refused to use the state limousines and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he was paid $12,000 American dollars a month, 90% of which he gave to charity or refused to take any of it for himself. And he presided over a very, very liberal regime, so people would say, of Uruguay You know, in the last few years. It had the world's most sort of liberal government. So uh, legalized abortion, legalized um, cannabis, gay marriage. But anyway, yes, so he retired in 2015. He's still alive, 87 years old. Doesn't spend his time, I imagine, in a horse trough. Uh, but is back on his farm cultivating his chrysanthemums. Does he still have his potty? I I don't know about the potty. I feel like if I did meet him, that's not you what would I, ask. It would, be, it would be tasteless to ask Tom. It would be okay. it would be insensitive to ask. No, that's a that's a that's a great story and a great end. And Dominic, uh, you pulled it off so well that I'm going to allow you to play the pipe the pan pipes again to oh, play wow. us out. Tom, that's lovely. So that was Uruguay. Do you feel educated now? Do you feel you know about Uruguay? I feel so educated. And Do isn't you? that isn't that what this tour of the globe is all about it's a process yeah. of self-education for us oh isn't that lovely? as much as anything else yeah so that's the tupamaras kind of a grim story but uh let's hope that one day you too don't become a prisoner of the tupamaros Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom? 
How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe. 